Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. I'm Claire Armistead. I'm Richard Lee. As London braces itself for an extraordinary-looking exhibition on Michelangelo's work at the Royal Academy, this week we're going to time travel back to Constantinople during the Ottoman Empire with a novel that imagines Michelangelo travelling to advise the Sultan, written by Matthias Enar. But first, a canter through the Costas. The Costa Book Awards is a stalwart of our literary year and reliably gives us fun stuff to chew over. Divided into five categories, first novel, novel, biography, poetry and children's book, winners emerge triumphant from each shortlist before competing to be named overall book of the year. It is unusual but not unknown for biography and children's books to be crowned, but it is more often given to novels or poetry. Claire, you're going to be speaking with biography category winner Bart Van S. Did his book stand out this year? Yeah, it's a, it is a, a lovely, lovely memoir. It's a memoir, partly a family memoir, but it's partly a sort of um, a mystery. And he's solving the mystery of how his family, A, came to adopt a Jewish girl. This is a Dutch family in the Second World War and give her sanctuary. And then she left because they, she was in danger of being rumbled. But then she went back after the war had ended. And then there was a big family bust up. And he's very good at doing the, the sort of um, hanging reveal, one might call it. But it's also written in such an interesting limpid way he's one of those writers who has no fear of simplicity which is not to say it's anything to do with being simplistic mm. um, so it's a sort of the way the sentences put together as a, a, a sort of utterly without pretension however I do have to say that part of the reason that I wanted to interview him now was because so much attention has been given to Sally Rooney mm. who is is is, is going into battle with the novel of the year and there are all sorts of reasons for thinking Sally Rooney will win it not least of all is that I've just been doing a quick count because mm. I'm a bit obsessed with prizes and with the with the sort of hardcore data mm-hmm. and novels have won it 50% of the time they've mm. won it more they've actually slightly more so novels in the first novel or overall novel category have won it more than all the other categories put together wow. so the likelihood is that it's going to be one of the novels and we also have a book that's got extraordinary stature and mm. I but I really really rate the cutout girl mm. and I, I just thought this is absolutely the moment to bring a quiet voice really classy voice that might otherwise get overlooked so it's not a spoiler to say that he goes and meets her in the current day is it that she's still she's still alive and, no um, absolutely not she's mm. in her 80s and he, he's very humble in in her presence you know he's he, he both says that you know he is constructing a narrative which isn't so clear when she's remembering it because she was only a little girl mm. when it happened to her so he, he's sort of constructing something out of pieces but also very respectful of the fact that she is the survivor and it is her story now one of the interesting things about this list is that three of these books are to do with the war mm. and so so you've got to cut out girl which is the second world war you 
you've got um, The Skylark's War, which is the children's novel from Hilary Mackay, which is set in the First World War. And then you've got Assurances, mm. um, which is the poetry collection by J.O. Morgan. And that is set in the Cold War, which <laughs> I find really, really interesting. And in fact, the, the it's that collection, Assurances, which gives us, I think, it gives us a couple of lines which could stand for the literature of conscience of our era, one of which is the opening line, which is born from a need to counteract the threat. That is the opening line of this book length hmm. poem. And I just sort of think, you know, we're, we're talking about people who there's a sense that there is a need for literature to have moral purpose at the moment. Well, why? You know, because we're in a mess, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first novel, Stuart Turton's The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle, is probably... Far out on that. Yeah, spectrum. I was about to say. <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty much a kind. Of, it's sort of a fun, plotty kind of yeah, novel, isn't it? It's so much fun, actually. And I, I saw the title, and I have to say that I judged a little bit based on the title because we had, we've had quite a few of those sort of quirky novels that are like the eight so-and-sos of namey name sort of thing and I've always just sort of gotten bored of that so I definitely judged it based on the title but then um, I was speaking to Alison who's our main uh, reporter on Guardian Books News and she really rated it and she was like no 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 the premise is really good so I actually went and looked at the plot and it's such a cool premise so Evelyn of the title is killed she's murdered at a party that is thrown by her parents and there's a fella called Adrian who basically Groundhog Day style is reliving the same day that she is murdered and uh, he wakes up in the body of different guests at the party and has to try and figure out who kills her on the day and it's such a good idea and uh, Alison actually interviewed him when he won the first uh, novel category and it was kind of hilarious we sort of we thought we might go in on Sally Rooney being named novel of the year because she was such a big fuss for normal people but, we haven't actually said yeah. the title because we're so used to talking <laughs> so about it so used to talking about <laughs> Sally Rooney I feel like I've been talking about it for about two years but then she spoke to him and he was so just sort of ordinary about his own novel like he said oh no I had an awful time writing it no I've probably only got one book in me <laughs> I really wanted to write it because I really like Agatha Christie and all this sort of stuff there's something going on with genre isn't there that that suddenly genre titles are beginning to pop up they popped up on the on the booker list as well last well we've year. had quite a few authors it seems to me really sort of being public about their love for old genres so I've, I've seen quite a lot of love for Agatha Christie from several novelists over the last year like quite a few people that write for the books that made me call them in review Agatha Christie is basically there once a week for one of the there's an the extraordinary piece in the London Review of Books by John Lanchester the other day say, saying exploring the fact that he'd read more than 50 Agatha Christie's now <laughs> You know why have why is she the only author that I've read more than fifty of? And mm. you, you know, not not you wouldn't consider her to be the sort of normal stamping ground for a literary writer. But this isn't a straightforward genre novel either. It's incredibly intricately plotted. He wakes up in the various bodies in various days and has to kind of get in and out of them because he's waking up at different time of day. It's very well put together. Yeah, no, I like it, and I, it's the sort of thing that I, I think Rooney's had a bit of a a rough time in a way, in that she has been so publicly lauded, which then like inevitably and depressingly then also provokes some sort of backlash to her and particularly because she's a young woman then that's immediately picked apart why is she successful why is she getting talked about all the time as opposed to isn't this a good thing and leaving it at that so why why do we not think we're not giving very much attention to the children's winner or the or indeed the poetry winner which is a it is a fabulous piece of work well the funny thing in with 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 children's uh, i wonder whether this is I don't really know, it's certainly in regards to the cost of whether this has changed, but only two children's books have ever won 
the overall book of the year. So we had Philip Pullman back in 2001 winning the Children's Book of the Year. Was that for um, the final? The Amber, Amber Spyglass, uh, yeah. yeah. And he didn't actually, for a little bit of sort of true devotees information, he didn't actually submit it. It had to be called in by the judges. <laughs> he, was so disappro- he was such a awesome. so snooty, <laughs> disapproving of prizes, the vulgarity of prizes. <laughs> and then Francis Harding, who won in, uh, it was 2015. Yeah. That was actually one of the first things I did on this desk. Oh, yeah. that was when I first started. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so so two two winners from children's. Actually, interestingly, poetry has won eight times, yeah. which is more than biography, and that quite surprised me. Six biographies have won, and this is only since 1985. The prize itself, in its former incarnation as the Whitbread, goes back to 1971, but they only introduced a book of the year in 1985. Mm. And poetry, but in fact, we were talking about this before. The poetry is kind of a funny one because when you look at the poetry collections that have won, they're often always about death. Five, five of the eight collections that have won dealt with dying and illness, serious illness yeah. or, or bereavement. And uh, Ted Hughes' birthday letters was one yeah. of them. Yeah. So and and and, and then obviously last year's winner Helen Dudmore who won posthumously, mm. and the collection was written. Uh, sort of from my hospital bed, parts of it. So, it, so it is the odds for the odds for assurance is not that good. <laughs> if it's a bit down on everything, maybe it will win. I don't know. <laughs> However, yeah, I, I could quote you dozens and dozens of lines from it. It's the sort of thing that I think even if if like a poetry collection is like genuinely sort of assured and confident and and brilliantly well done. I think there is still perhaps just among sort of general population, and there is this thing that one person's poetry is not going to be for someone else it can be far more divisive than a novel and perhaps going back to the children's book prize this is a similar thing the attitudes that people carry towards children's literature and its validity or not to be read by adults which you know of course we should read everything and we should read kids books because they're fabulous but there are a lot of people out there that would just immediately write off a kid's book and say that's not for me mm. you know and there's also the thing about the judging structure of the of the costas which is that there's, there's a category panel for each subject and then the one person from that panel goes on to a central panel which then also includes various celebrities so this final panel is chaired by sophie rowworth who's a bbc presenter and journalist and it includes the cookery writer and novelist prue leith and simon williams who is Justin in the Archers, which is very exciting. <laughs> but I don't know how much time, having worked in the Archers for ages, gives him to actually read a lot. <laughs> so do you think wow. a book as serious as Bart Van Essen's has got a, a chance with these judges? Well, it's a damn good story. You know, mm. it, it's actually a damn good story. And the thing about this hugely popular and growing genre of its own which is is the memoir history biography you know and it's it's it which is a crossover form it's not it's not a cradle to grave biography and and it brings the 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 author's personal life but it also tells a very touching war story i mean it just feels because he also brings himself into it as well doesn't he yes yes he he is sort of motoring around holland now the netherlands where he is from although he's lived in the uk for a very long time wondering how this very modern-looking history and this egalitarianism squares with this very, actually very sinister wartime history. I started by asking him why he suddenly decided as a Shakespeare scholar to venture off into, into memoir. Why suddenly take a walk on the personal side? Yeah, it's very difficult to sort of trace back a decision like that. I mean, I'd always known that there had been this story in my family that my grandparents had saved children during the war in the Netherlands uh, from a Dutch family. And then I'd also been aware that there was this row with a girl who'd come to stay with my grandparents after the war. 
and that had been upset about that when I was a child. But it wasn't until my eldest uncle, Case, died in November 2014 that I think somehow it sort of registered with me that if I didn't investigate this now, then the whole story would be lost. And I asked my mother about it, and she actually still had the contact details of Lean. And she kept in touch with her in spite of my, my grandmother's not wanting that. And one thing led to another. So this is the story of Lean, who is a Jewish girl who arrives with your grandparents at a period during the war when, very surprisingly, the Dutch didn't have a good record, particularly. I, mean, I, do, we, I would have always expected them to be, you know, it to be a nation that did cherish yeah. other, otherness. No, I mean, the level of Dutch collaboration with the Nazis is really shocking and was shocking to me. So you had an 80% death rate amongst Dutch Jews. And a, and a bounty on their heads, wasn't it? I mean, that's yeah, quite this, shocking as this well. This utterly shocking system was introduced of kind of commercial competition between two agencies for hunting Jews. So the ordinary Dutch police took the lead role, but there was also the establishment of the Hausgasserfassung, which was a commercial company that was initially set up for seizing Jewish property, but actually started seizing people as well because there was this bounty of seven guilders and 50 cents on the head of every Jew. And 9,000 Jews were captured by that company. And if we think about the war in chronological terms, mm. the movement to which your grandparents belonged to was, was a socialist workers' union, really, yes, yeah. wasn't it? And the church, the, this, unite, this reformed church, actually refused to have anything to do with this problem. It didn't give any directives or anything early on in the war until the late 1940s, did That's it? That's right. I mean, there was this horrific sort of Faustian bargain that was struck by the Reformed Church in the Netherlands, they were going to issue a joint statement with the Catholic Church uh, in condemnation of the mass deportation of Jews to Poland. And that statement was even prepared, but then the German authorities put pressure on uh, the Reformed Church and offered them a deal whereby if the Jewish members of the Protestant Christian denomination were not deported, that they would offer them that if they didn't protest, and they took that deal, and so they withdrew from the statement, which the Catholics did make. So, yeah, there was strikingly little resistance amongst the Dutch and my grandparents, because they were part of this socialist movement and also connected to a network of GPs through their friend Tokirama, were part of this very small group of people who did resist. Now, the opening line of the novel, I think it's the opening line, isn't it? Is yeah. It was Hitler that made Lean a Jew. Right, yeah, well, that's, that's the opening of chapter one. I have a little prologue as well, uh, yes. which opens with the line, without families, you don't get stories. Yeah. Yeah. So we have these two things in, 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 in tension. Yeah. So just talk a little bit about Lean and how, what do you mean by it was Hitler that made her a Jew? Well, you know, she was totally part of an assimilated family that barely thought of itself as Jewish, really. I mean, they were members of a Jewish sports club. They had got married in a synagogue. But beyond that, I mean, Lean's memories are of Dutch food, of being part of, you know, Dutch schools, of thinking about Sinterklaas and things like that. I mean, the Netherlands probably had the most assimilated Jewish population of any country in the world in 1940 when uh, it was invaded. And one of the very shocking paradoxes to the story is that, you know, the Netherlands was probably the least anti-Semitic country in the world at that point. You know, Jews as far back as uh, the Dutch Golden Age had had kind of rights that they didn't have anywhere else in the world, such as the right to bear arms, to pass citizenship of towns onto their ancestors. So, you know, it's then very curious that this in intensely assimilated group could also be just separated from their neighbours so quickly, which is really what happened in this 
very strategic process that the Germans masterminded between you know the date of the invasion, May 1940, and the date when Germany declared the Netherlands to be Jew-free, which was March 1943. And really, the vast bulk of the deportations were done in about nine months. And is something like 4,000 4, Jewish children survived? Yes, in, yeah. In the Netherlands, and, and 358 of them stayed with their... Dutch families or wanted to go back after after 1945. Yeah, I mean, that's something I, again, I didn't know anything about and I ended up investigating what happened with the war orphans in the Netherlands. So about 4,000 Jewish children survived separate from their parents in hiding during the occupation. Around half of those went back to family members. And then the remaining 2,000, most of them were actually brought, thanks to the intervention of, of a Jewish pressure group, actually went into orphanages or were sent to Israel. And it was a very small percentage where it was decided that they could stay with the the non-Jewish families who who had saved them. And that was the case with my grandparents in Lean. There were only uh, just over 300 children where that was the case. So let's then now move back onto Lean. And Lean, having been a a very cherished only child, quite fussy, finicky, one gathers. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think so. She she had eating problems, which went ahead when when she was treated, she was treated like a group of other children. Um, But she was very disturbed. And part of the story is her looking, you allowing her to go back to her memories of what happened to break the family up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, her initial period with my grandparents which lasted for about six months before there was a police raid. And she was 12? She was eight when she arrived with them and then she was nine when the police raid happened which just meant that sort of overnight from having really almost totally acclimatized to that family and and pretty much having already thought of my grandparents as her sort of proxy parents. There's this terribly moving moment where she describes taking the two rings that she'd been given by her parents and rolling them uh, through a gap in the floor already in, in November 1942, and she, that sort of way in which a child is able to kind of digest the idea that she's not going to hear from them. So she'd become totally part of the family, and then there was this police raid, which meant she was just passed down a chain of families that looked after her, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, over the course of the war. And it wasn't until November 1945 that she came back to the family. And what age was she then? And she was then 12, mm. yeah, as you say. And, and, and then she had been very profoundly damaged by partly just by this sort of continual estrangement. So, so I've called the book The Cutout Girl. And in the first instance, that's simply because of these little paper cutouts that she had in the poem book that survived the entire war, which, which has her father's poem on the first page and her one surviving relative, Aunt Rosa's poem, on the final page. So there are these physical cutouts that kind of give you that, that child's eye view of the war. But also her experience of the war was one of being continually pasted onto a new background and being cut out. And that was profoundly traumatic for her. She sort of says that she proportionately cried every time half again as she moved household and became sort of, you know, entirely isolated from the world around her. She started sort of almost living a kind of dream world And that sort of notion of of being cut out from family, from emotional reaction, I think was was the biggest legacy of her life in hiding, uh, which sort of went on for at least three years. 
And although she was traumatised and had reason to be traumatised, apart from the moves itself, some bad things happened to her. Yeah. You're very, it's a very kind book. And I don't know whether that's you or whether that's her memories of saying they weren't bad people necessarily. They were limited people. They were doing what they could do in the circumstance. And you say that of several different families. Yeah. I mean, when I started the book, my parents in particular were kind of worried about how my grandparents might come out of it because there was ultimately this quarrel with them. And, and they were concerned that it might be a sort of book of revelation about what had happened in the family. And I absolutely did not want to write a book like that um, because, you know, I profoundly admire my grandparents for, for having had the bravery to, you know, to act when, when most didn't. So I, I did my best, for example, to see things from my grandmother's point of view as well, um, which was sort of partly a story of socialist idealism that ended in a degree of disappointment in terms of what happened with that sort of welfare state model and yeah, I mean, even people like the Van Lars, who, who, you know, were not very good guardians of Lean, you still have to say, you know, they acted and they took her with them when they had to flee the village that was right at the centre of the Market Garden landings. So that I've was tried... the bridge too far landings, it would be another way of describing yes, it. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the whole operation was Market Garden. And then, yeah, the, the, the failed landing of, of 10,000 British paratroopers. In uh, 1944. Yeah, yeah, Lean actually witnessed those landings. So I'm very glad you think it's a kind book. Yeah, I think, I mean, I actually think the book has sort of made me kinder. I sort of feel it's changed me. I, uh, there's a moment in the book where I actually sort of reflect on a period of difficulty I had with my stepdaughter, who I've never called my stepdaughter. She was really with us from very early on. But I think sort of seeing the world from Lean's perspective sort of allowed me to understand the ways in which children can feel isolated from families that, you know, can do their very best to welcome them in and be warm. So, you know, I had access to my grandmother's feelings through reading her diary, uh, which she kept after the war. So, so I've tried to sort of, yeah, not make it a book about simple judgments and instead a, a book that sort of tries to see how sometimes good people can end up hurting each other. Um, without intending to. You say one really interesting thing, which could stand for the whole project of biography writing, really, which is her memories are not as clear as I have made them. She remembers scraps. Yeah. And so you have made a narrative, which is how much of it is her and how much of it is you? Well, yeah, it's, I think the way that memory functions for her is itself also a very interesting thing. So early on, she remembers almost everything. So this first journey that she had with the lady who came to pick her up at her uh, parents' door. She remembers that intensely. She remembers the jokes that the lady told to kind of keep her attention so that she wouldn't make a fuss on the train as they were traveling. She remembers the arrival. She remembers lots of things about arriving at my grandparents' house. You know, the, the It's pressed to the side of this woman so that the yeah. Star of David that she had on her clothes wouldn't be seen. Yeah, or in fact sort of pressed so that the, the fact the star had been removed wouldn't be seen because that was, that was the worry. If somebody saw she isn't wearing her star, that would be a sign that oh, she so was they, escaping. Oh, so they're assuming that they would have known but and then yeah, would have seen. Yeah, so, so in her neighborhood they would have known she was Jewish mm. so if she was walking around without a star. So they unstitched those stars before they let her go with Mrs. Hiraman. She had to walk very close to her so that that wouldn't be seen. And then, of course, once she was out of The Hague, she could just walk and she would just seem like a, a normal girl, as it was called. But um, this sort of process of, of, of being shifted from family to family, I think, was um, you know incredibly kind of anesthetizing for her. And it also stopped her seeing the world. So her memory becomes weaker as the, the book goes on. So there, there was a period where she spent around nine months in 
indoors in this farmhouse where she wasn't even allowed to go to the front room where the windows were and she just sees that period in black and white she can't remember anybody's name from that period and you know her feelings become uh, very abstract she doesn't actually she remembers the landings of the paratroopers but then she doesn't remember the journey that she made to Ada apart from in a few flashes so so what I had to do there was to interview other people who had been there and also you know use lots of historical archives so yeah the rules change in terms of how much I put in as the book progresses but I've tried always to highlight that to the reader you know where memory falls away and has she read it Oh, yes, she's read it many times. The way we wrote it was that I wrote every chapter and sent it to her for comment, and she would then send it back if she had any kind of minor adjustments. Uh, So it was really a collaborative project. I mean, I did many tens of hours of interviews with her first and, and then talked about how I was thinking the book might develop with her. You know, I frequently came back as well after that sort of intense period of writing and interviewing in 2015. So she's read it, and, she, and so have her children, who've been very appreciative of it. You know, and she'll come to the Costa ceremony with me. Uh, and and she, interestingly, she read it in English, and then she read it in the Dutch translation, and it hit her much harder in the Dutch translation. That was the first time she actually felt very emotional about it. But she says she thinks it's a good book, which is good. So people listening to this might be frustrated that we're slightly skirting around the issue of what did happen be- between Lean and, mm. your, and your grandmother. And I think we need to just explain why. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not being coy about this, but I think that is the question that you really do need to read the entire book to be able to answer, because it wasn't actually one thing. I mean, there was one central event, but on the other hand, it's also the product of, you know, their separate lines of emotional development. Um, that whole experience of feeling cut out after the war shaped Lean. So ultimately, the break didn't come until the late 1980s, but the seeds of it were really already sort of there in 1945. And one of the great things about responses to the book is quite a lot of people have written to me and, and talked also about that as part of their experience of the Holocaust. That we, we've, we've tended to think about the Holocaust quite often as being a matter of did people survive or did they not survive? And with Lean in the second half of the book, really it becomes a question of how you actually survive physical survival. So the row with between her and my grandmother is this sort of central tragedy um, but you, you can't fully understand it until you know you get to the, to the end of the book and she well lean rather wonderfully does come to understand it and she becomes a social worker and it yeah. feeds into her work with damaged children yeah I, th- I think the book is ultimately an uplifting book yes terrible things happen in it but it's also a story about how you can redefine experiences you've had how you can rebuild and the lean that we meet at the beginning of the book, the lean I met in December 2014, is this kind of fantastically vibrant, culturally interested, happy person. You know, she's got a season ticket to the opera in Amsterdam. She follows all the latest modern art exhibitions. She's got this fantastic uh, flat where artists and social workers have decided to kind of live together. So she has very many friends. And I think, you know, that's also you know, a relatively rare thing to hear in, in a Holocaust survival story, that you can come out of this and be a well-adjusted, happy person who can acknowledge the past, as she certainly has done, but also go beyond it. Bart Venice and his book The Cutout Girl is out now with Fig Tree. The Costa Book of the Year winner will be announced on the 29th of January. Coming up next, we travel continents and time with pre-Goncourt winning author Matthias Ennart after this. 
Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Before we get back into the podcast with Richard's interview with Matthias Enner, we're just going to take a minute to tell you about Guardian Jobs, which is sponsoring this episode of the podcast. In the first half, we were talking about the cost of prize categories, and we've all got different strengths. So I thought we could nominate each other for our own prizes instead. For example, Sean, I'm going to nominate you for most able to turn around an article in crazy quick time for an unexpected deadline. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) It's not quite novel of the year, but thank you very much. (laughs) I will take that. (laughs) Um, Richard, I shall nominate you for your dulcet tones on this very podcast. Oh, there you go. You have a very nice voice. That's delighted to hear it. That's marvellous. <laughs> Thank you very much. And Claire, I, I guess I would, I would nominate you for coming up with a perfect question, even if you have to do it on the hoof. <laughs> well done. Well done, Claire. Yeah. Hurrah. Rich, richly rewarded. <laughs> it's the award we all wanted to win this year, and you took it out. Well, at Guardian Jobs, our colleagues at Guardian Jobs can help you find your good company. It promotes a world of work where potential flourishes by connecting people with rewarding careers at like-minded organisations where values make the difference. It makes it easy for you to find roles that are relevant to your sector and for those jobs to find you. So whether you're looking for a job yourself or you're a recruiter looking to attract candidates who are engaged with the world around them, trust Guardian Jobs to help you fill your vacancies with people who want to make a difference. So find your good company at gu.com slash good company. Now let's get on with this week's episode. Matthias Ennar's work has always been deeply rooted in the Middle East. Two years ago, he landed on the shortlist for the Man Booker International Prize with his novel Compass, widely seen as a love letter to the Middle East. Now he's back with the marvellously titled Tell Them of Battles, Kings and Elephants. How does this fit in with the rest of his work, Richard? Yeah, well, it's shorter, for one thing. Mm. In the uh, Fitzcarraldo, the lo- rather beautiful Fitzcarraldo editions, the, the English versions, Zone comes out at 546 pages, Compass at 480, and Battles, a slimline 144. <laughs> this, is, this is this French... It's almost a genre in itself, isn't it? The sort of novelette. Yeah, the, the lightweight. <laughs> uh, the lightweight. <laughs> well, the condensed, shall we say. Mm. Exactly. The, the, I rather like it, actually. Um, it's, it's, got a, it's, it's trim. There's no, there's no spare flesh on it. Um, mm. and it actually won the Goncourt Delicien when it was published in French in 2010, which I think slightly bamboozled Enal, who didn't really think of it as a kind of as a book for teenagers. <laughs> um, but it is much simpler than than Zone or Compass. I mean, Zone is this one sentence stream of consciousness from a secret agent who's gonna he's on a train ride off to sell evidence of war crimes to the Vatican, uh, which was a kind of fir- there's a statement of intent when it appeared from Fitzcarraldo uh, in English or Compass indeed again, which um, that wound up on the International Man Booker shortlist uh, a couple of years back and won the Goncourt proper in 2015 but it's another stream of consciousness novel this time for an Austrian musicologist the Tell Them of Battles is, um, is again returns to the east I mean, Enar um, studied Persian and Arabic and spent 10 years in the Middle East in Iran and Syria and the Lebanon and Egypt as well and so he's going back there back to that kind of territory with this uh, rather straightforward tale for him it's this third person account of Michelangelo it kind of imagines that 
he accepted an invitation from the Sultan to come and build a bridge across the Golden Horn. Involving kind of elephants. It's <laughs> 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 full of heady sights and sounds, for sure. It's kind of the, the, the wonder of the East and all that. There's also a certain amount about the humiliation of the artist, how he's kind of obliged to kowtow to these people a little bit. And there's a, a strange encounter, a slightly awkward encounter with an androgynous singer who, who also forms a second part of the novel. It's, there's sections from this singer addressing Michelangelo in kind of in the second person. When Matthias came into the studio, I began by taking him back to 2010 in Paris before Charlie Hebdo attacks, before um, Brexit, Donald Trump, and asking him where this novel started. For me, you mean, well, I was in Rome, living in Rome at that time, and um, I randomly, every day, chose a book from a huge library uh, at the Villa Medicis. That sounds (laughs) marvellous. Yes, and and one day I, I just read... Michelangelo's biography by Giorgio Vasari, which was one of the first biographers of Michelangelo. And I read this sentence that said that at the point Michelangelo received an invitation from the Sultan of Constantinople to go to Istanbul. And I was amazed. It was like, what? Michelangelo in, in, in Turkey? What, what, how can that be possible? How, Two worlds how collide. Yes, and, and as a, I'm quite a bit of a specialist of this kind of encounters, and I didn't know that. So I said to myself, that's, that's a great story. I want to know more. Why would it be commissioned to do what? And furthermore, had he been there? That was my, my main question. You know. uh, is it possible that uh, at a point Michelangelo had traveled to Istanbul? So I went directly on the, the, the day afterwards to read the... Um, another biography of Michelangelo, almost his autobiography, because it's written by one of his uh, disciples called Ascanio Condivi. And we know that Michelangelo kind of dictated it to him. So I read, and there was a little more information in that biography. We knew that it was uh, Franciscan monks that transmitted the letter of the Sultan to Michelangelo, And I learned that it was to build a bridge over the Golden Horn. And that was very surprising for many reasons. The first of them was, how could the Ottomans know so quickly that Michelangelo had fighted with the Pope and was back at home in Florence, and then that he could possibly go to Constantinople? How were they that well plugged in? Yes, they had many spies because it was like two or three weeks before. So they had to to have very, very powerful spies to know that so quickly. And then, why Michelangelo? Because he was not an architect at that time. He hadn't built anything. He was not just, he was just a sculptor. Wonderful, magnificent sculptor. Very just well known for No, very well known for David, but it was not so uh, yet an, an international fame, you know. So... I was surprised that they would commission a, a bridge, such an important piece of architecture in the middle of, uh, of Constantinople, to an almost unknown Italian artist. But it's true that Michelangelo was a genius, and so we have to recognize that the Ottomans knew who the genius were, even in Italy. And Italy, at that time, you had the great genius and artist was Leonardo da Vinci. And the Ottomans had also proposed the bridge construction to 
Leonardo da Vinci. It's incredible. And we have the drawing of um, Leonardo's bridge, his project for the bridge in Constantinople, which was never built because it's almost impossible to build. It's a crazy invention of a very huge arc about 400 yards and uh, uh, just one arc was impossible to build at that time. So when I, I read this all this information and I, I was fascinated and I decided to send Michelangelo to Istanbul and see what happened there. Because even if he didn't actually go there we in don't know. real life, then you I, can send it there in fiction. Of course. We don't know if he really... It's, it's well, very improbable that he went. But I asked anyway, I asked two specialists of the, the Renaissance period and of Italy at that time, I asked them, is it possible that between Florence and Bologna, because we know that afterwards Michelangelo goes to Bologna, is it possible that he went to Istanbul? And they told me no. Uh, so I went, well, why? Why? Why is it not possible? We would know about it. Uh, <laughs> so I said, okay, if we would know about it, then I'd rather send him anyway. <laughs> so that's what I did. It's, it's like almost a provocation, uh, isn't it? Yes. So, <laughs> to the novelist. Well, I am saying that, but we have also some clues. There's a strange relationship between uh, Michelangelo and Turkey. Because we have a manuscript of his own hand, of a sonnet, signed Michelangelo in Turkey, Michelangelo in Turkey, so, uh, and many other things that links him to Istanbul. So even if he has not been there, it was not something totally foreign to him, because we know that, for example, he inspired himself of the dome of Santa Sofia to build the one in San Pietro. So there are many small relations, but real relations between him and Turkey, so it was not so crazy to send him there. It's a story about bridges, as you say, of connections that are almost made or paths not taken. A, a metaphor that's almost too acute in a world made different by the disaster of the Iraq war. Yes, probably now the world is more... Uh, the two worlds are more separate than ever. And if you think of Turkey, for example, uh, I think the weight of Turkey is balancing towards the east more than it is towards Europe. But at the time when I wrote the book, that means almost 10 years ago, Erdogan was still little, and uh, we didn't know in which direction he would, <laughs> he would fall or decide to go. So, And there's always this kind of balance in Turkey between more West-oriented people and, and more East-oriented ones. So it's very interesting country, even for our times, or I should say, more for every day more for our times because we need such uh, countries and people who are at the same time east and west the, the idea that you could build a bridge that this unbuilt the bridge, bridge is there the bridge is Istanbul itself you know um, the city uh, stands on both sides of the Bosphorus so it, it already exists and the bridge anyway the bridge that Michelangelo was commissioned to build was between north and south it's not totally a metaphorical bridge, you know. Um, it's a real <laughs> project. In in a way, I was quite disappointed when I realized, I was fascinated, but also disappointed when I realized that it was a bridge because so it's too easy a metaphor. <laughs> it's a kind of, I would love it to be, I don't know, a dome or a wonderful um, mosque thing, um, a huge mosque in Istanbul, for example, that would have been great. But, a great garden. But, yes, <laughs> but a bridge... Uh, now all the, the readers would say, come on, <laughs> a bridge. 
uh, between east and west. And I said, no, it's, it's only a bridge between north and the south, which makes it more, uh, let's say, believable. <laughs> but I mean, because there's also the connection of, I mean, you, you talk about the, the painting of God and Adam and, and Sistine Chapman, they don't quite touch, do they? Yes. And there's there's but, Michelangelo lying next to the singer that he meets in the bed and not quite touching again. So it's all about these almost moments. Yes, almost the things that happen and don't. And that it's about the book is about this. And also, if you look afterwards in the career of Michelangelo, the big achievement after his trip to Constantinople would have been the Sixteen Chapel a few years later. And there are many strange Oriental elements because, of course, they are biblical too, and uh, in the figures of the of the Sixteen Chapel. So it was a kind of beautiful joke and quite ironical one to think that the original character who is Adam on the roof of the Sixteen Chapel is in fact a Turkish poet who Michelangelo was in love with. Again, it's, it's a mar- <laughs> marvellous changing of history. Yes, of course. It's a, you know, history is at times the way you see it or the way you wish it. History is not time itself, it's time rewritten. And to emphasise our links with the East, it is very, I don't know, uh, it was very interesting for me to point that out, that maybe, you know, these characters we think are so Catholic and so the biblical probably are, or maybe are, people he knew in Istanbul at that time. A different set of connections. <laughs> I was wondering where the interventions from the singer came from. Did you, did you worry about taking on a perspective of someone so very far away from your own, or was that, was that kind of the point? Oh yes, you know the, the books is very constructed uh, into. It is a threefold books. You have three cities, three religions of the book, like Islam, Catholicism through through Michelangelo, and Judaism. And you have also three main characters, three voices, and the third character, this strange voice who speaks in the night and talks to Michelangelo and tells him stories. He's uh, really coming, for me it was, uh, I, uh, when I read uh, for many years I've been reading classical Persian and Turkish poetry and there are many characters there of dancers, drinkers, cup bearers, and you don't, you never know if they are men or women, because either in 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 Persian or in Turkish, at that time, you have the difference between he and she. So, we know from historians that they were, at times men, at times women, at times women dressed into men, or the other way around. So, I imagine a character that we don't know exactly if he's a she or a he, and um, whose voice is very poetic like coming out out of those verses themselves and directly addressing and yes talking to us and to Michelangelo at night your Michelangelo is clearly some sort of genius but he feels humiliation at every turn is this the lot of every artist Michelangelo was very proud and he was if there was something that he was certain from the start from his very youth was that he was a genius and he knew it and you can read Michelangelo's life as his path to be respected and admitted as a genius and as a great artist. So I imagined through this the 
personality that he would be of course humiliated as we are all by the small matters of the world and what he would love to do was to be totally free to do his own arts to, to not to need get a patron yes to not need somebody to invite him to of course the, to be himself the, you know he's the first artist with the real name we have you know he has what the Italians call this terribilità he's a terrible figure he's uh, very strong severe and so I, I, I imagine him still young in his beginning of his 30s going to a strange country to work for another sultan whom he won't really see and thinking himself that quite humiliated by these circumstances. I think it's quite plausible. Before Michelangelo, we don't have this kind of life, artistic life, totally dedicated to art. And the name of Michelangelo is getting very important. His own name and his own figure, his own character. During his own lifetime. During his own lifetime. Uh, he has a very long life. And he's the first artist of that kind, who is the first very, very rich artist, very well paid. We know that because we have, um, of course, all of this, these papers, and we know many things about his life, all his contracts. And um, so we know that he was very rich, very, very rich at the end uh, of his life, that he owned many houses, uh, lands, and many things. So it's, it's really the, the first history of... It's a kind of Picasso, so to, to find a kind of comparison. This uh, long life, very well-known, genius, very rich. Matthias Enard, his book Tell Them of Battles, Kings and Elephants, translated from the French by Charlotte Mandel, is out with Fitzcarraldo. Next week, we'll nip back to check in on the Costa Book of the Year winner to see if we were right. And we'll be speaking with Thomas Page McBee about learning to box and becoming the first trans man to step into the ring at Madison Square Gardens. Until then, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. Me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.